It is indeed. We're live. BCFM 93.2. We're broadcasting from Eastern Community Centre and we're also online via Pirate Nation. Welcome. Extraordinary people. It's the One Love Breakfast opportunity to get up close and personal with individuals who we think have made a difference to our community and our city. Some of the people we talk to are very well known, others not so much. And I'm pleased to say this week it's a turn of the Member of Parliament for Bristol West, Thangham Debonair. Thangham, welcome to One Love Breakfast Extraordinary it's People. It's lovely to be here, Pat. Thanks so much for asking me. Uh, listen, we're really pleased that you're here. I want to start at the beginning. You were born in Peterborough. Oh, this is like this is your life, isn't it, Eamon Andrews? <laughs> I can't do the accent. It was a long time ago, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> On the 3rd of it. Two days before my birthday, oh, Leo, I know. on the 5th, yeah. uh, on the 3rd of August yep. in 19, <laughs> uh, 1966, your father, and I didn't know this as well, of Indian and Sri Lankan, yeah. uh, Tamil family origin, yep. uh, and, and English mum. Yeah, that's why I've got this Tamil name, um, the, the Thangam bit, it means gold. Uh, whenever I visit India, people are very fond of telling me, did you know your name means gold? Yes, oh, wow. I did. It's my grandmother's name. And yeah, my dad came over on the boat in the late 50s uh, to take up a scholarship to study here, actually to study the piano of all things he was a very unusual man tell me a little bit about him uh oh god my dad uh he was the eldest of a lot of children and he really loved playing the piano and he was very very gifted at the piano and his parents really backed him his dad was a a, an amateur guitarist and composer and just really unusual family and but brought up in the methodist tradition in south indian christian tradition and he went to live in the manse at the methodist church in in madras as it was called then and was encouraged um by the pastor there to take up um, a scholarship in, in to study at the Royal Academy of Music, of all things. And his parents backed him to the hilt, sold everything they had so that he could get wow. here on the boat on a one-way ticket, which must have been really hard. Mm. You think in the age of no Skype, no email, yeah. no mobile phones, aeroplane tickets cost a fortune, and he didn't see his parents again for a couple of decades. Now, people talk a lot about that tradition, but how much of Indian or, or, or Sri Lankan tradition were you brought up with, or was it... so? quite mixed because of that that whole Methodist background. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? Because actually it a is. little known fact about India is there's actually more practicing Christians in India than there are in this country. Mm-hmm. And South India, there's a lot of Christians and a lot of different Christian strands. So in fact, my cousins still go to church um, at the uh, South Indian, uh, I can't remember its exact name, Church of South India. Wow. It's a very specific thing like the Church of England. So I'm very close to an Indian form of Christianity. Um, but also I was from a mixed family. My mum was English. Um, my dad was of a generation, uh, it, a lot of first generation people did this, not all, where they decided that we had to really fit in and we had to concentrate on having a very good English accent and trying to not draw attention to ourselves. My dad speaks the Queen's English. Yeah, right? mine too. My dad, you couldn't tell on the phone. Yeah. I mean, people didn't understand when he said his name was Prabhu Singh. Did he ever have a, an issue? He'd speak to someone. I remember my dad once going, uh, actually, it, it, it's not a great story, but he actually went to, uh, to get a loan, I think, from the bank. Uh, and spoke and did much of the stuff on the telephone. When he turned up, they turned him down. Yeah, I mean, there are similar things I can think of. But mm. um, I think my dad was a very, very proud man who who felt that um, he had something to offer this country and that he really wanted to be part of this country. And his experiences, both good and bad, and the effect they had on him, have really shaped how I think about immigration in this country. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I went into politics, is I wanted to help shape... The debate that's happening at the moment, in fact, even now, sure. the government and the opposition are announcing plans on immigration policy, mm. and I feel I've got something to contribute. I think all okay. of us mixed-race people do have a unique perspective to offer to that. We have. We have, definitely. 
Tell us about mum, because I want to I, I get into the early parts, and, 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 and there's some quite fascinating things um, that I'd like to find out uh, about you as well. Wow. And I, I'm sure many thousands of people listening will. So tell us about mum. So my mum uh, was eldest of three from a very working class family in Oxford, the east end of Oxford. Her, her dad worked in the Cowley Motor Factory, and her mum was a nurse, and she also, unusual, she got good at the piano. Just, you know, just sheer chance. She got good at the piano, and her mum also just encouraged her to pursue that and she also got a place at the Royal Academy of Music and that's where my parents met Wow! you know how lovely how romantic both parents musicians but some but amazing um, early memories I guess musical yeah. early, early memories well totally and still still do you know so for instance this weekend when I'm going up north for Labour Party Conference I'll be mm. staying at my mum's and we will be playing music that's one of the things oh. we do together and we still do she's a great pianist um, so you know she, she my dad and my mum brought me up to see music as a, this life affirming thing and a gift mm. and aged four I had a babysitter um, who played the cello and I just thought oh I want to do that so I natted so at my mum and dad to get me a cello and they did that was the inspiration mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about early life then and so you were born in Peterborough so 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 where did you live and and, and what was family life like kind we, of on a daily basis what, what what was the house and the neighborhood like we moved around and we didn't live in Peterborough we didn't actually live in Peterborough we lived just outside and we moved away from there fairly quickly to live um in uh, in Wiltshire and then in Dorset uh, my dad taught at, uh, at various schools as a music master but at the same time was pursuing his career as a solo pianist was a bit unbalanced in that he always wanted to be more of a successful solo pianist than he ever quite achieved and in my view his talent surpassed where he got to in his career but that's that's life for a lot of people isn't it mm. he played the piano ferociously so my childhood memories of my dad practicing the piano and also of some of the frustration for my mom because she never wanted to be a soloist but she was a pianist and he always got first dibs on the piano so we got two pianos in the end <laughs> and, and we moved eventually to Yorkshire when I was about six and I did most of my growing up in Yorkshire Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot colder than here. Mm. We Yes, we lived in a very interesting house on the top of a moor when I was six. When we first moved there, my mum had a little baby and two, a toddler and me, and we had no inside toilet and the heating didn't exist and we had to go and get our milk from the farmer across the field. Um, we didn't last there more than a winter. My mum said, that's it, we're moving down to the valley. So for you, in, in that situation with the outside toilet, were you kind of conscious of that or was it, was it quite normal to you? No, I mean, the thing is, when you're a kid, you just see everything as an adventure looking back on it now I think my god my poor mum you know that must have been really Mm. difficult no wonder we only stayed there a few months and then we moved to a perfectly normal housing estate and that was much easier but even so what was interesting and I think this has shaped me as well is that wherever we lived we were the only black family and that was always a bit of a tension I think Um, it was a sort of mixture of my dad wanting us to fit in but also him sort of sometimes closing his eyes to the fact that people did notice that we were black Mm. and that you can't just Queen's English your way out of that. And that, yeah, I think that's the story of so many of our lives going through those similar situations. Mm. So for you, I'm not saying exactly what age, but when do you think you first became conscious and aware that you were different in terms of ethnicity within the neighbourhoods that you lived? Oh, when I first went to primary school. It was really obvious. I mean, apart from anything else, this was the age of Enoch Powell making the Rivers of Blood speech, or it was in the aftermath of that. And people did literally and kindly, I think they they thought they were meaning it kindly, ask me if my family was going to take up the offer of a ticket home. 
Wow. Which just puzzled me, to be honest. At first, it just puzzled me. I thought, well, we just came from up the road on the bus. So, <laughs> you know, I'm all right. Didn't really understand what they meant. Um, and I became more and more conscious of it um, the older I got. But I think like like lots of us um, who grew up in the 70s, mm. the 60s and 70s, yeah, we, we were conscious of it possibly more than we let on to our parents. I certainly didn't want my dad to feel hurt. Do you think do you think your dad would have done the same thing, though? Because I know my dad did and I know my mum did. They hid racism from us, too, to protect us. So there was this two way thing. We, we, we'd come home. It had happened to them. It had happened to us. And it was the only time we ever spoke about it, really, was when it happened to us together as a family. Totally. And the only difference there is I think that we didn't speak about it even when it did happen to us as a family. My dad would just say, just ignore it. Walk on. And when my mum, ironically, the, who, who's an, of, um, uh, of British and white, um, she was much better at equipping us with some sort of emotional resilience of how to deal with it, sorts of things to say and who to tell if it was unpleasant and what to do about it. And she was really good and supportive, whereas my dad, I think, was much more painful. But you're absolutely right. I'm mm. absolutely dead certain that my dad hid things from me. Sure. And when he was near the end of his life, um, and I mean, sadly, he died in 93, and towards the end, I tried talking to him about it and he just said, no, I don't want to talk about it. That's it. It was in the past. I, I don't want to talk about it. My dad still won't talk about it now. I, I, I try my hardest to talk about partition and some of the things that happened and he's... Yeah. He says he doesn't remember. Yeah, and I, I think that my dad did something similar and, and I'm not... Sh- I feel... I got to a point where I thought, well, that's his choice and he obviously had to protect himself when he got here, lots of things happened. He came, um, probably your dad did too, at the age where there were still signs in the window saying mm. no blacks, no dogs, yeah. no Irish. And it must have been a huge shock to a young Indian lad. He yeah. was 19, who th- had been told that this was his home when he was part of, India was part of the British mm. Empire. He'd been told. And partition's a good example of people suddenly realising actually the British have made a bit of a mess of this yeah. separation. The, the yeah. myth More that we've been given, you know, yeah. a huge mess, a huge yeah. bloody mess where millions yeah. of people died. And there's this sort of myth that I think lots of us were taught at school, which was India and and Britain parted as good friends and it was all very amicable. And and we in India got the railways and India, English people got to go home with dignity and it was all very amicable. Queen got the crown jewels. Queen got the crown jewels, you know, all of that stuff. And it's just not true. You know, the partition was bloodshed. And we've lived with, as a subcontinent, as you know, Pat, you know, the the impact of that is still with us. Hmm. You know, India's still at war with Pakistan. Yeah. Technically, we're still at war with China, I think, as mm. well. You know, the, these these decisions that were made by the British shaped all of our lives in many different mm. ways, and some of us more directly than others. How much was, was dad or mum into politics at a at, at, at younger age? Would it be things that you would discuss, or you wouldn't necessarily discuss racism? Because I'm, I'm interested, you know, part of, obviously, from your life experiences, what is it that fueled? Because I know for me where my politics came from. Um, but for you, what do you think it is that, that, that kind of fueled your political beliefs? We always talked about politics. And um, my mum's parents were very political. Um, so, as I said, you know, they were working class parents from East Oxford. My granddad was very active in the trade union movement mm. and in the co-op party and in the Labour Party. And he became a Labour councillor in Oxford City Council and subsequently in Alderman. 
gentleman. We were very proud of him. Yeah. And my grandmother would have been an even better counsellor, but it was the days when the women made the tea, by and large. Mm-hmm. Astonishing waste of talent. And my granddad was at one point asked if he wanted to stand to, for Parliament. And he said he couldn't because as a working class man, he couldn't afford to take the six weeks off work unpaid to campaign. Gosh. And my goodness, I know what he means. Wow. Because it's quite a stretch for I know I, when I did it, I, I saved up, I remortgaged my house. I know exactly what he means. But he didn't didn't have a lot of those options. And he right. had young kids. And he, he said no. And I look back on them and I think those were two great politicians, both my grandmother and my grandfather. And my grandmother explicitly brought politics into every conversation. Gosh. And you know, we were encouraged to have a political view on just about everything. Except, as you say, ironically, not racism. racism. So, so as a youngster then, primary school was when you were first aware of ethnicity and, and, and difference. How about uh, at what age? I and mean, we'll talk about music in a second, but kind of politically, because you are, you, you are an MP. At what age do you think, I don't know, a light bulb came on and, and you thought, you know what? I am more interested in politics than than maybe just to want to talk about it. Every, I'd say once, hmm, that's really tricky to say because I can't mm. remember not feeling politics was important. Right. I can't remember not knowing really deeply and internally that politics is about everything. You know, it's about where were these biscuits made? What's in, the, what's in my coffee? How right. did it get here? Who yep. sold it and under what conditions? And we were kind of brought up to encourage to think that way. But my grandmother in particular was really, really... I think she was in some ways slightly frustrated that she hadn't been able to pursue political ambitions she clearly had. And she encouraged me to think about it. And mm-hmm. I didn't. Um, but it was always at the back of my mind. It was never a career ambition until in my mid-40s, when I was quite active in Labour politics in Bristol, mm-hmm. a few people started saying, have you ever thought of being an MP? At first, I just thought they were being finding a polite way of saying, you're an argumentative son. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah, because they say the same thing to me, but they mean I'm argumentative, I think. Um, so, wow. I, I, and I remember interviewing you um, when you weren't necessarily, well, you weren't an MP. It, yeah. it, it, it was about domestic violence and uh, one of the charities and the campaign uh, that you had. And I remembered, well, how, how can you forget? Thangham Debonair. <laughs> oh, Pat, how can you, you always, that heart? <laughs> no, but I remember easily. But I remember saying to you when we did the, the hustings uh, and, and we had everyone from UKIP to whatever, and I remember saying to you, if it's anything, you're going to win because of your name. Everyone's going to remember that name. It's a great name. It wasn't just your name. It wasn't just your name. <laughs> I want to know about your training as a cellist and kind of your early musical exploits, if you like. So mum and dad both piano. Yeah. Uh, you piano as well but apart from was it the babysitter at the age of four that, that it was played the babysitter cello? that played the cello yeah. and it was the cello was all, always my first love mm. I played the piano a bit I can I'm fairly basic now on the piano okay. I would say but whereas the cello I can still play really well I, I played it last night in fact wow. in, and and I get a lot of pleasure out of it for those that, that for those that are listening and think cello I'm trying to I'm trying to picture it describe the instrument it's like a big violin with a metal spike at the bottom and you hold it in front of you and you have a bow that goes across the strings and some people say it's the instrument that's closest to the human voice and that's why it's got the oh, most wow. emotion in it and I think there's some evidence for that it, it plays well with the voice which is lovely because my, my, my husband's a singer and he also went to the same music college as my mum and dad not at the same time <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask no um, but they, the, the human voice cello thing I think is, is, is probably there and I the cello was my big love and I got to play the cello a lot just mostly through chance and luck but mm. also the good fortune of the fact my 
parents are musicians. It's one of the things that drives me is I want every child to have an opportunity, the opportunities like I have to had to an artistic education, because I think every child should get the chance to make music, paint, act, draw, write. How important do you think that is and why? So important. So important, Pat. I mean, apart from anything else, first of all, it's a joy and it's a joy that stays with you your whole life. I will get pleasure. I I personally get pleasure at music my entire life, every bad moment in my life or good moment. And you know how people... If, they, if you want to describe your wedding, I was at a wedding this weekend, and what will people say? They'll usually say, oh, the first dance. What yeah. was our tune? What yeah. was playing as we walked down the aisle? Or whatever it is. Yeah. People hear music all the time. Yeah. And I think what so was there's that. playing when you walked down the aisle? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, actually, nothing was playing as I walked down the aisle. But afterwards, we had Under the Sea by Bobby Darren. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> somewhere yeah. across the sea, she's there waiting for me that Whoa. one yeah wow. that one i think we had ready, ready for love india Ari as sherry walked uh, uh, sherry oh, walked down the aisle that's as well, lovely uh, which was cool so the cello can be or has been described as some probably like me that that can't play as as not cumbersome but actually for as a youngster something that is quite awkward to try and get to grips with and learn how how was it for you still awkward uh, pretty big my dad had to get me a little chair and then it was still too big for me he had to cut the legs off it and sort of make them shorter oh, it was really cute i had a quarter sized cello it must have looked pretty cute to be honest looking back but i never thought of it as a burden till eventually i got to the teenage years and i had to get I had a full-size cello with a hard case that did a lot of travelling around and yeah, yeah, it was hard work but you, it was my instrument so I didn't see it as, as a bad thing but to go back to what I was saying I think the creative education is also not just about the thing itself creativity but also about what you bring to any job you end up doing we need creative architects we need creative nurses we need people who are willing who know how to solve problems in an interesting and imaginative way and otherwise you do it would that. just be like puppets or robots we would. right? exactly and in the future when we're thinking about which we must at the moment what is work for when digitization and robotics are going to replace most of the jobs we currently do by the middle of this century most of our jobs will be gone hopefully not yours pat but it will be jobs <laughs> like these yeah. which will come into their own it will be the creative ones which mm. robots can't replace yeah. and we will need people who know how to think creatively instinctively and who've had a love of creativity built into them so whether you're inventing a new medicine or you are um, you know you're a, you're a dj on bcfm sure. encourage creativity is for me it's the future it's everything wow now you didn't just like the cello um i'm reading here that you know you've you, you've played with uh, the royal liverpool philharmonic orchestra um uh, professionally as a, cl- a classical cellist this is before becoming an mp and studied the first stage of mathematics a uh, mathematics degree oh, gosh, uh, yes, at, I did at do oxford that. as well <laughs> at the same time uh, as training uh, as a cellist at the Royal College of Music. What was that experience like? Well, combining it, but I'm probably more in less the mathematics. I'm more interested actually in the, the professional side as a cellist because I know what it's like to perform as a musician. And I know the joy that you get to create uh, and to play and to see the response, and but also the adrenaline, the nerves. <laughs> the worry what was it like for you uh well i just loved it i still do 
Um, I absolutely love performing. Um, when I was a youngster, I was a lot more confident. I never had a problem with nerves. I've only really experienced nerves as I got older and had to, started being much more conscious of the fact that actually this stuff takes work. And being a musician, you, you really have to think about it. But that's incredible pr- preparation for any job and being professional in any way. So I loved it, but I also think it's taught me some great life skills, which, again, one of the reasons why I want creativity for all children is because it helps you with so many different life skills. The maths... I loved the maths. I've forgotten about that, actually, until you mentioned it, because it's, it's, it's always needles me, the fact that I got through two years of a maths degree and then I reached a plateau. Everyone, I think, at some point in maths reaches that plateau. Some people reach it younger. Mm. I was really good at it. And then I got to a point where I thought, I no longer understand a word at all and just couldn't crack through that plateau at all. But because I'd kept up the cello, I had this other option anyway. Yeah. And that, that sort of nourished me and made me feel like there are other career options. Mm. I sort of feel like I've never really decided what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm like that now. <laughs> yeah, well, th- me too. I, like I that meant now. that. I, yeah. I'm still at that point. My aunt used to say to me, I'm not going to do her accent, Anglo-Indian, but she used to tell me, you need to get a real job. I go, auntie, I'm a broadcaster. <laughs> that never, is a real job. Not, not a real job to her. <laughs> in, in terms of the music, did you ever write? Did you ever perform your own compositions? Or was it always stuff that you'd grown up with and, and obviously creations written especially for uh, compositions, written especially for cello? Um I wasn't much of a composer, but my oldest and dearest friend, a fantastic musician called Jonathan Cooper, um, is a composer. And he still does, actually, compose things explicitly for me or with me in mind. Um, And I I feel really privileged to have been able to work with someone who was that creative. And he we would have a method of working whereby I would do some improvisation and then he'd take what I'd made up and make it better and then write it down and play it back to me. And so that I would play like a better version of what I'd thought of and then he just had a whole other piece around it so oh, yeah I, I feel really lucky to have worked with him and to continue to work with him even though I'm now definitely in a happy amateur rather than full professional I mean the, the Liverpool Phil thing is, is interesting because I was actually I only worked for them for a few months yeah. and during that time I realized that being in an orchestra probably wasn't for me and I wanted to do different things so I worked a lot in the theater I played in a small string quartet which is two violins viola and cello mm. I did a lot of work with people who work in theater and opera and who were doing interesting new things do you was the the whole orchestra thing i'm not saying was it too disciplined because that makes you sound like you're not disciplined but but was it maybe a lack of your ability to shine through creatively or maybe improvise that that made the, yeah. the orchestra not for you yeah totally i mean I, as a youngster i played in a lot of youth orchestras and i played in the national youth orchestra so i played to a high level and mm. i loved 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 it and i still get emotional when i hear an orchestra yeah. but i realized that if you're going to do that for the next 45 years mm. the discipline of your job is to fit in and make a group noise that's a fantastic experience i loved it as a teenager and i got to about 21 and thought now i think i'm done and I'm not good at this anymore. And it, there was a specific technique, and I felt that like I wanted more of the quirky stuff, and I wasn't going to get that as an orchestral musician. So before we hit the news, there's, there's probably two questions just about music, really. Um, if you were to pick two, two instances, one from a, if you like, from a, a professional perspective, what is your, what's your greatest musical moment, something that you did or, or, or something that, that you achieved musically? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it, is it okay if it's one where it wasn't professional? If you want. It, my sister's 50th birthday party earlier this year, my friend Jonathan, who I told you about, um, she'd asked him to compose a piece for 
us as a family because every single one of us plays an instrument and my sister bless her at her 50th what she wanted was a concert in which we all performed pretty hard work to be honest so yeah. we, we were performing but we performed this place for piano harp two flutes oboe and cello which is the combination of instruments in, in my three sisters and my mom and my sister's two daughters and we played that that was a lovely moment because it was us as a family doing something yeah, for, yeah. For, for love that was wow. I'm really proud of that it was it was glorious you've kind of answered both of my questions because I was going to say and personal as well but 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 that the story so. that you've told come on how many people listening could do that with their families I mean I'm trying to think if ever, everyone no I don't think everyone in my family plays an instrument I'm sure we do something maybe have a game of football but that must have been amazing for you that, that the entire family and maybe nephews or nieces as well yeah. being involved in the whole thing but I mean like you say every family's got its thing haven't they you yeah. know every family has a thing that they do together and that's what makes family so important isn't it it's that's the thing that we do in my family and other families will do other stuff it's it's mm. we all have our thing and that's what binds us together absolutely now i hope in the first half of extraordinary people we've had uh, just a little bit of an insight uh, to thangham debonair where she was born and uh, some of her early interests as well as we move into the second half hour uh, we'll talk more about thangham becoming an mp but before that uh, some of the professional work she's done as well including working as a national children's officer for the women's aid federation of England, uh, which is why she moved to St. Werburgh's, I think, in Bristol in 1991. And also in uh, June 2015, uh, six weeks after being elected, Thangham was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer too. So we'll, we'll have those conversations uh, and we'll find out more about Thangham Debonair, who's in for Extraordinary People here on Bristol's One Love Breakfast. We're live on Ujima Radio 98, BCFM 93.2, and we're online via Pirate Nation. Live from the BCFM studios in inner city Bristol On your mobile, online, DAB and on FM This is the One Love Breakfast News So Thangan, we've, talk, uh, we, we've spoken about your early life uh, And we've spoken about your love for music uh, and, and, and your family background as well And how actually both of your parents as musicians Have kind of encouraged uh, that excellence in music Because you've gone up to a really high, high level as well We've also spoken a little bit about politics in the sense that you always spoke about politics at home, apart from racism, which is interesting, but not untypical of maybe people of our background. We'll talk about your rise as, as an MP shortly, but I'm interested in some of your earlier work and, and what moved you uh, to work, for example, as the National Children's Officer uh, for the Women's Aid Federation of of England? Well, I'd got involved in Manchester, um, where I was living, um, in volunteering at my local Asian women's refuge. And then this was in the mid 80s when we were just beginning to, as communities, talking about, we're just beginning to talk about what domestic violence looked like, that what was specific to South Asian communities and, mm. and what was, was in common with other people. And there were some things that were specific. And we, I, as a volunteer in a young Asian women's refuge, I could really see the need for support for young people who were experiencing domestic violence and whether that was um, difficulties with their parents. And in some cases, some of the young women I was working with 
they came to us because one family member was physically violent to them to try and get them to marry someone they didn't want to marry. Now, yeah. we didn't like talking about that in South Asian communities because yeah. we didn't want those cliches about us to be the thing that people thought about us. And it was always a minority, violent, forcible marriage, and it yeah. still is, but it does happen. And so we had this weird culture of silence, and I wanted to try and help more young people. And across the board, not just South Asian, but I felt like I had something perhaps to, to offer. And I did quite a lot of work with that refuge and quite a lot of campaigning and training. And then there was a job offer. I'd just been to India, didn't quite know what to do, came back, saw a job advertised for National Children's Office at Women's Aid Federation National Office. And it was to help part-time to help set up and support um, programmes across the country in refuges to help support children who'd experienced okay. domestic violence. So just what I wanted to do. How often had you been to India uh, growing up? It's something that, that, that I, I hadn't asked you. Yeah, well, actually, I now go every year. Right. As a child, it was help? really difficult. Do you need help with anything? Do you need any support, <laughs> bag carrying, stuff like that? Well, the thing is, the difference now, I mean, I'm laughing, but the difference now is, of course, that the, the price is, you know, it's in, it, compared to what it was in the 70s, mm. I mean, my... My my dad didn't get to see his parents until 1976, so he hadn't seen them for 20 years. Wow. And he took me, and it was very, very expensive. A family friend actually paid for us to go right. because they knew my dad was, my mum, my, my grandmother was desperate to see her son again, yeah. took me as well. And we didn't go again until the late 80s, so I'd been maybe two or three times in total. Um, what were your impressions uh, in, in, in terms of, look, you're, you're living here in the UK, born here in the UK, so you kind of know about your ethnicity, but not, I suppose, what we would call, well, we say not a typical, what is a typical mm -hmm. South Indian family, yeah. to be fair. But yeah. when you went to in India, what were your observations? What do you remember about it? Oh, I remember so much. I mean, my first time was two weeks in 1976. The first thing I remember is that my dad had clearly forgotten what time of year the really hot season was because right. we arrived in April and we arrived in the middle of the night and I said, Dad, what's that heat? I was wearing a winter woolen coat. And he said, oh, that's just the aeroplane engines. Don't worry about it. And three hours later, I said, Dad, Gosh. it's not gone yet. <laughs> and he suddenly remembered that April was the hot season. And right. so, you know, the heat. And in 76, things are very different. I mean, India is a modern, growing, fast-growing economy. Mm. It changes every year. Yeah. Every time I go back to Chennai, which is what Madras is now called, it's a different city. I mean, my dad would not recognise it now, I don't think. They would, except mm. for tiny little corners he might recognise. Mm. So my overwhelming um, feeling was that it helped me in some ways to understand my dad better and why he felt so uncomfortable about his identity and his ethnicity. Mm. Because it had clearly been really hard to leave his mum and dad. And... It was what he wanted to do and they'd backed him and they'd supported him and they'd made huge sacrifices. So to have to acknowledge that when he got here, he faced racism, yeah. that must have just been too much. Mm, and wow. I think that's true for quite a lot of first generation people, never wanting to admit to their families that actually some things about being here were painful yeah. and difficult. So, they've, yeah, they bottled it up. Mm. In terms of poverty or in terms of politics in India and, and, and this great divide, were you ever aware of it in, in, in your early visits? Did you see, you know, sometimes it can be stereotypical to say, oh, we'll see, you know, people on the streets. But yes. actually, yes. that's how it is. Yes, yes, yes. I was very aware of that. And that was a shock. I mean, in 76, there were still people on the streets with elephantiasis, which you know, mm. I don't think I've seen in, in decades now mm. in India. But people were seriously ill and a real 
divide. But also in those days, the middle class was not particularly rich and mm. not particularly large. And, and now it is. I mean, yeah. it's been huge change in India. Yeah. My aunt was a doctor and she had her own clinic, but she lived in what I thought to be quite a modest little tiny house mm. attached to her hospital. I mean, she's now built on top of it and has yeah. quite a fancy apartment. But in those days, it was still modest way of life. Now, it was very much part of this South Indian Christian ethos that my family sort of had going through them. So that kind of idea, your, your political beliefs and stuff were kind of, I wouldn't say shaped there, but it was shaped from home. But if you've got a particular ethos, you, you'll notice things that maybe others yeah. wouldn't notice when you go places. Like yeah, that. I mean, I was brought up with that ethos of, of understanding that uh, it was wrong that people tried to rule each other because of their skin colour. And that was always there. But talking about the emotional, personal impact of racism was absent. But the intellectual and political arguments about inequality were absolutely there. And I was also brought up a Quaker because my dad and my mom were, were Quakers in this country. Yeah. So that's the Religious Society of Friends that's Christian. Yeah. And we believe in equality and pacifism and valuing that of God in every man. Yeah. Uh, which actually now you should probably alter it to that of every God in every man and woman. Yeah. Um, but, or just every person. You know, just every yeah. person, just yeah. everybody. Body. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was that b belief in equality. And I think my Quakerism, the way I was brought up there, really has influenced my politics. And although I no longer go to meeting for worship on any sort of regular basis, mm. it's still very much part of my family. Sure. But it's shaped my values and it's shaped my political values. OK. Tell us about your time in Bristol. You've been in Bristol for a long time. Uh, so was St. Werburgh's the first place that you landed? Not quite. For six months, I lived in, um, I had a room in a flat up in Cottom just because okay. I didn't know anyone in Bristol when I got here I got this job yeah. young and excited didn't know anyone in Bristol a friend of a friend of a friend said oh, this person's got a room yeah. and I lived there and then I bought my house in St Werburgh's and this was back in the early 90s when mm. St Werburgh's was not the shishi place it is now I, it was it was quite scruffy and <laughs> and you know I hope no disrespect to my fellow St yeah. Werburghians uh, we saw yeah. things happen over the course of the 90s that really sure. changed our neighbourhoods yeah. well, that's where Sherry grew up Sherry grew up in St Werburgh's and uh, Mum and Dad has still got home there St Werburgh's Park well uh, and, and so, I love yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I think St. Werburgh's, when I moved there, it was a really good example of just well-built working class area. Yeah. There was the works at the end. There was Brooks Dye Works, mm -hmm. and, which is now going to be a housing development. Yeah. But, you know, it was when I moved there, people were still employed there. Mm. And it was your classic sort of setup of people living in nice terraces who would all go, their kids would go to the local school and they would work at local firms. Now, that's changed as the world has changed. Mm. Um, and it's I still love St. Werbs. I think it's a great place to live. Mm. I really love it. But I know for a lot of people, the property boom and what's happened in the city with housing it's forced, has, it's forced people out yeah. which I, I regret bitterly mm. and I sort of feel like I'm one of the one of the last people standing from the early 90s lots of people have moved out okay have you ever and if you have at what stage did you fall in love with Bristol oh, almost from the start I mean when I first got here I didn't know my way around and so I didn't know the buses so I bought an A to Z because in those days no internet and I just walked and walked and walked and yeah. just thought what a fantastic city it's beautiful it's got hills which I love because Yorkshire girl yeah. and it was also warmer than Yorkshire so that was nice <laughs> and less rainy than Manchester that was also good but I just met so many great people and also I got here at a time when music was really exciting in Bristol mm. and 
and you know you had massive attack and tricky and 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 you know jungle was coming along and all those things that now make me sound really you're old. a bit of a junglist were you Little, think? Tiny I bit. Know that. <laughs> yes you know i just thought this was such an exciting city to be at because yeah. i'd got i'd got i developed another side to my musical appreciation mm. when i was living in manchester and i used to go clubbing a lot in the house scene in yeah. the late 80s yeah. loved it you know i was i was one of the girls standing on a podium waving my hands in the air ah, um, so when i got here i thought oh this is such an exciting music scene and yeah. it was and, and I'm, yeah. i mean it may still be i just i feel a little yeah. bit more removed from it now yeah no, it is. It, it is. is and yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, forever it is. Growing. And I think from kind of, I think it was it was only PRS uh, some years ago, but I think we've stayed to saying the most musical city. Yeah. I, I suppose yeah. per square, whatever. Yeah. More, you know, more musicians and whatever in this city. People come to Bristol for for they music. They do, and it's one of the reasons I love it so much, and one of the reasons why you know, as I referred to several times earlier, you know, why I'm so passionate about creative education because mm. it's part of who we are as a city. It's part of what makes us great. It's part of why people stay. People come for the music, the creativity, the street art, and all those sorts of things and they stay but I think it's also important to recognise that other than people like me who are incomers and we came along I want to make sure that people who are born and bred Bristolian don't feel yeah. pushed out and I think there is that tension particularly with the, yeah. the house price boom I think that's made a lot mm. of Bristolians feel like well how does this city work how does it work for all of us how are we connected as a city mm-hmm. and I think that there's a job of work for all of us to do there to bring sure. the whole city together and make us all feel like being Bristolian yeah. is something we all share I love Love it. I would call myself a Bristolian. Well, I'm an immigrant to Bristol. Came here when I was 13 from Nottingham, from the Midlands. So uh, it's my home. I never fell in love with it, first of all. I disliked it. I didn't like the accent. I couldn't understand people. I got in in a fight at school. Uh, Someone was just saying something nice to me, but I thought they were insulting me. Um, But now, well, very quickly after, maybe two or three years after, there is no, if I'm if I stayed living in this country, which I probably would, it would be nowhere else than than yeah. Bristol. I absolutely adore the city. Yeah, no, I, me too. I absolutely love it, and I get a thrill. You know, every, every Thursday when I'm in Parliament, you, this is an unusual week, but normally I'm working in Parliament and mm. in London Monday to, through to Thursday, and I get such a thrill when I get on the train in Paddington and think, oh great, in an hour and forty, I'll be back in Bristol. Yeah. And the moment when the train comes into Temple Meads, you know, your heart lifts. It also sinks a little bit when you see the old post office building but you know that's yeah, changing yeah, yeah. you know lots of things about Bristol are, are on the up which is really encouraging but at the same mm. time we still have some real problems with inequality which I think as a politician that's part of my job to try mm. and fix okay I'm gonna I don't want to skip across much because there's so much and we, we probably need four hours your your ability to campaign your ability um, to um, to be a politician before you were a member of Parliament uh, would have been useful. Being uh, a fundraising manager and then uh, a research manager for Respect, an anti-domestic violence organisation. What is it? Was it just a, nas- a natural pro- progression from some of the work you'd done before, or a sense of something that you'd you'd experienced through through your work with other people that you felt so passionate about? Um. There were a few things. As we came through the 97 to 2010 Labour government and as we were coming towards 2010 and we'd had the global financial crisis Mm. and it was clear that people were going to blame the Labour government for it, even though it was a global financial crisis. But I was campaigning around that time for the Even George Osborne said it wasn't uh, Gordon Brown's fault. Pity didn't say it at the time. Yeah, but but for me, what I noticed was that in my family, so my my first um, partner and his sister and children, all my friends, 
friends and my neighbours. You know, it's for so much of us. Our schools were improved, our hospitals were rebuilt. People I knew who'd got education maintenance allowance for their kids, so they were able to stay on at school and yeah. go to university. It had transformed our lives. And no government is perfect. And it would be remiss of me not to say that obviously the there are lots of caveats to that. Um, and there are things that, you know, if we, if we had our time over, obviously the, the war in Iraq was a horrible, horrible thing mm. to have happened and the consequences we're paying for now. And at the same time, so many things about that Labour government transformed our city. You know, I wa- walked over from St. Werbs today and I saw a little notice on the side of St. Werbs Community Centre saying funded by HM government. I thought, well, it actually was... Not this government, not the one before, not the one before, but it was the Labour government. I remember it happening. I remember being outside schools and thinking, this is a transformed school with loads of teachers now. So it made me want to keep that going whilst at the same time realising that it wasn't going to be there. You know, we we were going to lose in 2010. And that made me want to try and fight harder. Okay, that was your inspiration in that sense. But. I'm going back to the, the, the domestic violence stuff in, in, yeah. in, in terms of your, your campaign. And that's when I first met you. What, what was the drive behind that? Because you've also co-authored two books uh, and, and written a number of papers about domestic yeah. violence. I mean, I also worked with uh, men who were violent to their partners. Um, I also helped support people who were running programmes for women who were violent to their partners before yeah. anyone rings in and says it happens to men too. Yes, it absolutely yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. And I work with the men's advice line for yeah. male victims of domestic violence. But I was really, really interested in what inequality in the most intimate relationship, what it looks like, what it does to people and what the impact is on their family, on their community, on their children, on their colleagues. And I was interested in trying to fix it. And I felt when I was working at Respect and I was also working at a programme, I was Mm. a facilitator working with violent men, that... What I was learning was like one of the best, one of the most interesting things to learn, which is about how to change that. How do you change it when one person here has got all these ideas that they're allowed to insist on what happens in the relationship, what yeah. happens to the other person, everything about them sometimes, and to use violence if they don't get their needs met or their, their wishes fulfilled. Yeah. And I thought if, you can w- le- if you've learned to work with someone and change their mind about that, you've learned a lot of skills about persuasion, negotiation oh, yeah. and change, which are applicable to politics because politics is really about change if you are a Labour politician anyway what you want is change for Mm. the better you want the world to be a better fairer place uh, a more peaceful place where resources are shared equally now that requires us as politicians to be able to make arguments and to listen to people and to listen to where people are coming from I could not have helped a single violent man if all I'd done was wag my finger at him and say you shouldn't be violent I had to be willing to listen to them and sometimes that was really uncomfortable it's not easy is it it's not easy listening to people who make you feel uncomfortable but actually if you really want to change things you have to be able to listen to the people who profoundly disagree with you Mm. if you only listen to the people who agree with you you're done for do you think that some of the research that you've done some of the books that you've written do do you think some of that has been taken on board with current, poss- uh, yeah, um, you I know, do. because otherwise we don't learn, do we? But if legislation and, and, and current learning doesn't include th- this expertise, then, then we don't learn. No, it's one of the things that's made me proudest is I didn't. I wasn't sure that I'd be able to use all that expertise in Parliament, but I really have. Mm. So, for instance, I've set up the all-party parliamentary group for work with perpetrators of domestic violence to help members of Parliament to understand what that work looks yeah. like and to challenge it. Because it's easy just to label and polarise, yeah, isn't it? And then it people is. don't understand. And also, I've worked with the minister for um, who's going to be responsible, the Minister for Women and Equalities, who's going to take through another domestic violence bill soon. Mm. And I've persuaded her that we need to have work on perpetrators in there. And that's already in the draft consultation 
implementation stage of the bill. So I'm really proud of that. But also the, the work that I did with young people to try and equip young people with the skills and knowledge they need to prevent them getting into domestic violence, which is my yeah. big passion. I brought that to a bill that went through Parliament a year and a half ago, which is now law, which is going to, if the government could just hurry up and implement this, going to make it compulsory for every young person to have high quality education about sex and relationships and about how to have safe, healthy, loving, caring relationships rather than abusive ones. Mm. And across all strands of diversity as well, you know, whatever sort of relationship you're in, whatever yeah. your identity, your gender identity, your sure. sexuality. Now, that's a great example for me of why having people who bring skills with them to Parliament is so important. And that's one of the things I'm really proud of is bringing those skills putting them to use and I know that there will be people who will benefit as a result of what I brought to Parliament. It will never say my name on that particular clause in that particular act but it's the feeling of satisfaction. Sure and and I guess it's not that important as long as it happens. Exactly that, that's all that happens because the, the, I think every politician needs to remember it's not actually about you. Hmm. When you go into politics it should be about public service, it should yeah. always be about other people. Everything you do is about other people, not about you. What goes on yeah. in your... You know, the only things that are about you are the things that you do at home when you're making your tea and, and you, you're, you're having and an argument with your partner and, and that a, sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was 2015 then, uh, Bristol West, a majority of 5,673. Did, did, did Stephen Williams say anything to you? Uh, he I said mean, congratulations. Okay. And have you spoken since? Many do times. You speak? Yeah, yeah, we do. We've spoken many times because, I mean, for a start, he was campaigning in the referendum the yeah. following uh, 2016. Yeah. And we were both campaigning for Remain at that stage. And then he stood again as a candidate last year. So yeah. we saw each other quite a lot. Okay. Well, when you were re-elected, um, you just increased your majority a little bit, didn't just you? Just a little bit. 37,336. Is it? Is, uh, is it? Is that what it is? Oh, oh, I'd yeah. forgotten. Oh, had you. <laughs> had you now. But let's take you back a couple of, uh, of years before. So um, not that long after you were elected, you were di- diagnosed with breast cancer. Yes. Um, yes. I know that, it's, yeah. it's probably not something that, that maybe you want to talk about or, or, no. or maybe something you haven't. But how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, you know, the... What I've learned from that experience and the decision I took it when I got diagnosed was to be public about it, partly because yeah. I was a new MP and I thought if I'm a new MP and I'm suddenly disappeared from view, people are going to notice and they're mm. going to wonder why. Yeah. And I hadn't even got staff or an office at that stage. So right. I had to kind of work out how to balance this. Yeah. And I'm really, really passionate about making sure that everybody, men and women, all know how to check their breasts. Right. Uh, because I had got out of the habit of checking. Now, I'm right. not saying that would have necessarily prevented me having cancer, but it might have meant I got treatment earlier got yeah. picked up earlier but everybody needs to know how to do this and build yeah. it into their lives because early diagnosis is absolutely crucial sure. to have the best possible chance of, of good outcomes from treatment and how it happened um well i'd spent three years as a part-time candidate unpaid knocking on doors t- mm. talking to people every single day of the week hundreds of people doing things you know being trying to get my yeah. name in the media which is difficult when you're a candidate not yeah. the mp all of that stuff on top of my job on top of my family responsibilities. And I got to, after the general election, and saw a lump. And it was about two weeks after that I saw it, and actually at that point thought, do you know what, I've stopped checking. If I'd been checking, I'd have seen that sooner. Was it a difficult decision or just a straightforward decision is, I need to get this checked? 
Um, oh, it wasn't a difficult decision at all because as soon as I saw it, I was pretty sure what it was. And right. I, I got an appointment with my doctor. Yeah. She looked at it, said, yeah, you need to go to a specialist. I saw the specialist within two weeks and I had sure. a treat- a diagnosis within minutes and a treatment plan by the end of the day. Um, the shock came a year later, which is, is a, I gather, often the case for a lot right. of people who have cancer, is that you just you go straight into the slipstream of treatment. And it's only about a year later you have the time to think, blimey, what happened there? Um, but, you know, what does not kill you makes you stronger. And mm. sadly, cancer still kills yeah. a lot of people. And I feel extraordinarily fortunate mm. that it didn't kill me. And I will never take my health for granted again. And mm. again, that's something that I feel like I've learned. I know other people learn. And I'm, I'm not saying that if you don't take your health for granted, you won't. You know, that This is not about um, blame, but it's also about feeling like the only thing you can do when you've had cancer is try and take control of certain bits of your health. Yeah. You can't, I can't be certain I won't get cancer again, um, but I can try and lower the odds by taking better care oh, of my health. Of course. Of course. And, yeah, recently, I mean, you're looking well. Thank uh, you. And you're looking happy. That's difficult, isn't it, when you're a politician with the amount? Because, of course, there is stuff that, that kind of gives you elation when, when things go right, like that 37 or thousand majority. But also there are times when publicly... Uh, people will insult you, people will be rude, people will be unreasonable. Um, you know, you might be in Parliament and, and, and sometimes your experience isn't that what you would expect. How, how do you keep that level head and that, that focus when often all around you, we've all seen on TV, <laughs> and you know, all that going on in Parliament, we're thinking, really, do they represent us? And you, as a woman as well, have got, have got to go in there uh, and say what you need to say and, and, and achieve for us. You have to have a strong sense of your own values. And I have a really clear sense of what my values are. And I've tried to bring them into my staff team. And I only recruit people in my staff team who've got, they've all got lots of different experience, lots of different skills and qualities. But I try and make sure that we have a shared sense of values. And I employ people who are cleverer than me so that they can tell me when I'm off beam. That's my excuse when I got married. I'll get married to someone who's cleverer than me. Totally a good idea. I can recommend it to everyone. Every boss should do this. Just employ people who are cleverer Mm. than you. Um, And, you know, big shout out to my staff because they also bring me the greatest moments of joy in that mm. they help individual people in Bristol West and I get the credit for it which is often something that I feel a bit bad about because it's often my caseworkers who've done mm. most of the spade work if not all of it sure. and people will still come up to me in the street it happened yesterday but someone came up to me in the street and said thank you so much for helping me with this particular problem that mm. she'd had and I thought okay I only did a tiny bit of that so yeah. thank you caseworkers thank you staff in Team TD and that's what but gives me the positivity to be honest because it's, you were elected that. That, 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 that people come to. You know, we've got about um, 90 seconds oh. left. Very, very quickly. Uh, drugs land. OK. But yep. drugs reform. We spoke about uh, yep. South Africa's decision today. Just very qu- quickly. Why do you think it's wrong? Uh, it's not at serving. The moment? It's not. The policies we've got at the moment are not serving the people I'm here to represent, whether they are including, in fact, the people who do not take drugs and never want to take drugs. They're not being well served by the fact that there are drug dealers and drug users with problematic drug use on their doorstep. We need that's not solving. Keeping all those drugs illegal isn't solving our problem. We need different ways of solving it. I think we need drug consumption rooms. I think we need drug safety testing in clubs and festivals. I'm really glad that I helped mm. prove that it's possible to do that. Yeah, the loop. But yeah, yeah, and I you know I work with the loop a lot. But I also think you know my constituents who are having to tolerate someone drug dealing or shooting up in their corridor need a better deal. So I'm I'm heading up the Labour campaign for drug policy reform. We don't think we got all the answers, but we and know we'll, that what we've got's not good. And we'll get you in to talk about yes. that separately as well. Uh, we're almost out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm glad that we've concentrated on you. Uh, because if you like, uh, you would have still been an extraordinary person to talk to. 
whether or not you had been an MP or not. Oh, and I think thanks, that's important. Um, oh, 20 seconds. If I'm walking along the street and I'm saying, Thangham Debonair, do you know her? What would you hope people would say about you? She works hard. And she works hard for the people of Bristol West. I hope that's what they say. Brilliant. Thank you, it has been a pleasure. Uh, for those listening, if you want to listen again, this will be available in the next few days on iTunes as well, as well as a podcast uh, on BCFM Radio and Ujima Radio. Thank you, Devonair. You are an extraordinary person. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, Pat. Oh. This is Bristol's BCFM on 93.2, online and on your mobile. BCFM is an award-winning community radio station for Bristol, bringing you national news on the hour. Live from the Sky News Centre.